I was not one of those guys who at eight years old wanted to build something and at 14 I was selling like glasses or stuff like this. I ended up there by mistake, but after that I couldn't work in a traditional business anymore. Welcome to The Wagon Live, where each week we bring you stories from entrepreneurs around the world. This week, we're talking to Julien Khaled, co-founder of British startup Made.com, a business that's revolutionizing the affordable luxury segment of the furniture industry and is changing the way we think about our homes and especially what we put in them. Enjoy. Thank you for being here with us. So not so long ago in The Guardian, uh, your co-founder Ning Li uh, wrote something like, we want to be the next IKEA. So can you maybe tell us more about uh, what Made.com is and what's your positioning and what makes you different from your competitors? Okay, uh, that you're actually starting with the worst question. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's a good one, but I, we have a debate on positioning ourselves against IKEA, by the way. As IKEA was and is still, I think, one of the best things that happened to the furniture, in the furniture industry in like a lot of years. Uh, on, on we'd love to be their size on as innovative as they are and we're trying to but we're slightly an upgrade from IKEA so it's always a bit risky to do it in the press. Um, what we tried to do when we launched Made in 2010 was to address one simple need from the customer point of view and we were kind of our first customers uh, which was that at that time if you wanted to buy something that was an upgrade for, from IKEA or something that had a bit of personality and was a bit qualitative, that was quickly very, very expensive. So if you wanted to buy a table, if you wanted to buy a coffee table um, just for your flat and you didn't care, you could buy their uh, the IKEA a 19 pounds uh, coffee table and that was very efficient and very functional. But as soon as you wanted something nicer, you had a lot of crap, sorry for the word, that everybody was making all the, all the lower end retailers. Nothing was very original and it was not very high end. And if you wanted something slightly higher, that was very quickly, very expensive. Um, knowing from our background a bit how the furniture industry was working, we knew that they were, there was a lot of margin um, there between the price you were paying in a factory for the sofa, for instance. Let's say that this sofa could be bought, something slightly nicer, could be bought in a factory for $150. And it was being retailed in, 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 the, um, in, in the high street stores in the UK for 900 pounds. Um, the worst part in that is, so that was due to the way the industry was working on, on pre-bank on, on pre stuff, on inventory, on a lot of people were involved in the process. And the worst part was that nobody was making money, to be fair. At that time, all the wholesalers were going bust, importers were uh, struggling. Um, the retail industry, uh, for, for the furniture industry, was struggling to they were it's not like all these guys were taking their cut and screwing the customers just like the way it was working so we just looked at the different approach using the web on, on on the fact of selling everything online on a bit of a different supply chain model on the different product design model to make nicer products a bit more quantitative with better raw materials that would cost more in the factory still very affordable for the customer on roughly half the price they would have to be retailed for with the same kind of uh, supply chain as the industry was working on. And we started, so we, we were um, four co-founders, including three exec, three working in the, in the company, um, my co-founders Ning on, on Chloe. And the last one was called Brent Hoberman, actually the first one because he made the first phone call to put the team together. Um, 
<clears throat> and uh, we got together in December 2009, started with uh, calling a designer who was, had a blog. He was an Italian designer in, in Roma, I think. No, in Venice. And he had a nice table we liked. We called him, got him for an internship in London, hired him, hired somebody to help us with uh, factory management. Hired a CTO, uh, head of uh, creative, somebody to write the website, to, write, uh, to do copywriting. And we launched the website pretty quickly, actually, in March 2010. On the 21st, with, um, it was selling an amazing quantity of products. We were selling two items. Uh, we were selling one table on a pair of chairs. But we didn't care too much because the story was you're going to get great designs, super affordable, super nice. By the way, the tweak is you're going to have to wait because we're going to pre-sell it to you. We're going to group all the orders because it's an amazing product. It's super beautiful and it's cheap, so you're going to be thousands of people ordering it. And I'm going to place my order at the end of the week to the factory. They're going to make it. It's going to take eight weeks, four weeks of shipping, two weeks of like buffer. Um, you're going to get it in 14 weeks, but you don't care because you like the story and we're a cool company. So that, that's how we started. Um, if, if, a few things worked pretty well and we had to tweak a few other things. Um, that's how we went. We had two products the first week. Uh, after two weeks, we had four. We had a table, two chairs on the two coffee tables, and then a week after it was a table, two chairs, two coffee tables, and five lamps on it. We built a catalog from that to now roughly um, 4,000 products. We got from a team, I'm, I'm skipping all the middle on purpose and get to the end so that you have questions <coughs> and you can ask what you want. It's never been like, like that. It went quite like that. But now made is um, from an, a company of like four, 10 when we launched on, on two products, only online, only in the UK. It's now a um, company of 350 people, retailing in six countries in Europe, um, turning over last year 100 million, roughly, and growing 40% per year still. I was going to say per month, which is stupid. Um, um, with a catalog like, of like three, three to 4,000 products, which is the, the, the key thing for us. We're working with 30-ish factories, um, and we've been collaborating with 60 plus designers. We have like a core of 30 plus designers we're working with on a very regular basis on everything we retail now on you have available on the, on the website is something that has been designed either in house or in collaboration with external designers. Yeah, I'm sorry. Everything we have here is actually IKEA. So don't worry. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I'll, maybe I'll go chronologically, even though it's kind of boring, but we yeah. can like, you know, go around and fast forward, whatever, we'll see. Uh, but so you said, so Brent Hoberman made the call to put you all three together. Is that, yeah. Is, yeah. So how, how did that happen? Like, did you, did you know him? What were you doing before? And like, what made you like say, yes, I want to go ahead and build a furniture retailer company? Yeah. yeah. So I was born in 19, uh, I, <laughs> Uh, I did business school, so, uh, which was great, but at the same time was not so great because you can do kind of anything afterwards and then you don't know what you do on, on, on most of the people doing it, including by chance, maybe not myself, but you end up doing things and then you're like, what, what the fuck am I doing? Um, I did business school. I ended up doing the last year specializing in entrepreneurship, which means, by the way, nothing. The only thing that was good is that was very practical. A lot of missions dealing with companies and working with entrepreneurs. And the other thing that did is from somebody who didn't want to create a company, 
I, it's not that I didn't want it, but I was not one of those guys who, at eight years old, wanted to build something. And at 14, I was selling like glasses or stuff like this. I ended up there by mistake, but after that, I couldn't work in a traditional business anymore. I think the two things that got me to to work on to launch something with people was to the first thing was to be kind of your own boss. That's one part. On the big thing was to make a change. On on what we tried to do when we launched Made was to change an industry. That's more motivating than doing something if you don't have a passion for like music or clothes or something. That that, that was the motivation. Um, Ning was a friend from business school. Um, Ning had launched a company quite similar before, which we almost worked on together, but I knew quite well how they were doing it. Um, and he had ex exited on Brent, um, was the founder of lastminute.com and had then uh, another company called mydeco.com, which was in the furniture industry, was more of a, they had different businesses, but they, I think they were looking into tapping into direct e-commerce sales um, business, something more tangible. It was, it was more of a community, a search engine on, on stuff like this in the past. Chloe was working with Brent at that time. Okay, yeah. And just, just uh, for those of you guys who don't know who Brent, Brent Oberman is, he's, um, he's the co-founder of lastminute.com and he, he's also the co-founder of um, a network of really successful entrepreneurs, which is called Founders Forum. So he's quite a figure here in the tech London scene. So. Um, so maybe to, to go back then to what happened in between. I'm going to be interested in the like up and, up and downs uh, at made.com. So right now it's, it's a very successful company, um, but I guess you had quite a few challenges. So maybe you can tell us about those. So like maybe challenges with your co-founders potentially, and also just rebuilding the entire way a supply chain works is actually something that's super interesting and I guess extremely hard, so, or maybe not, but okay, so yeah, a, a lot of questions so in this yeah, question. It's, it's, it's a few ones. The supply chain looks like the most scary thing to some people, but to be fair, it's much more scary than it's complicated, or maybe I'm a bit uh, biased, but we innovated in the way we're doing stuff. On, 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 in the way we, we, we tweaked it afterwards, but that was not the most complicated part of the business. I think we just did it pretty well, and we also redesigned the way you develop product with designers, and collaboration with designers on directive factories. That, that, was, that was a big part. To be fair, the first issues appeared very quickly because we, so we sold our first product in March. We, it was working amazingly well uh, as we thought at the time because we sold one product the first day on, on, on the product the third day. On. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. We were expecting PR, that's kind of pretty cool because we were expecting PR to make the company like a, a rocket and actually PR is good. We had a good story, a good team, but we were not selling like hell. The first great time we had was, I was actually sharing a flat with Ning at the very beginning. And, <laughs> We were usually waking up a bit late, but not as late at 10, as 10. And at that time at 10, I was still in bed, like checking my, my, my cells. And I didn't hear him in the shower. And I was like, I was believing he was doing the same thing because we were getting a, a sale every 10 minutes, which at that time was amazing. It's just that a blog had featured us on, 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 on we had an amazing day on, on we thought that the next day would be the same. And actually no, but the peak goes down on, and then you scale up a bit by bit. But we started dispatching our first item in, in July. And what could have been my best weekend ever because we sticked all the, we went to the, to the, the warehouse we had, we uh, labeled all the products, I labeled all the products, and we sent them through the, through the delivery company. 
And I went back to the office. I had a very good friend coming to London before he was living for like two years in the US. And I stayed in the office until 11 anyway, because we realized that everything we labeled was labeled with wrong label that didn't work. And all our first 50 customers got no tracking on their delivery, no matter what we had told them. So everything was lost. Then we had issues with quality on the product. Few of them, the, the products were amazing, but the packaging of the sofa was not good enough. So for mail orders, so if people were like dropping it, legs were breaking. So the, the very beginning was a bit tough. It was good, but it was a bit tough. The good thing is, if you have a good story, on, if you're trying to do good thing, on if you're making mistake, but you're, you're in contact with the customer, on, in this case, we're pr on the delivery, we were very proactive because we knew as soon as somebody tell, told us. On the quality, we didn't know, but we were very reactive. As soon as you're dealing with it, and you're showing that, that you're willing to improve, it's good. People used to say that you have, you always, if you, your customer will always forgive you for one mistake, but they won't forgive you if you do it again. So you just have to show you're you, you making it right. But then it, it, it grew quite well. At the end of 2010, we were a, good, uh, a pretty good startup, not a big company yet. Um, I remember the or investors telling us that we had to be in the club of the company selling retailing for 500k a month, which by the way is still pretty big. Um, and we're like, we're not doing, we're trading quite lower, we're increasing every month, but quite lower. On, on, on mid 2011, we had an amazing summer, and things grew pretty quickly for a few basic reasons. I mean, July or is the month of sales in the UK. On, on, if you work in the furniture industry, you're too big month for January and July, even though we're doing almost no sales just people are in, in, a, in a will to buy furniture. Secondly, we release great collections of product and we might be an e-commerce company or a tech platform. At the end of the day, we are an e-commerce brand. So if you have shit products, you don't sell. And if you have good products, you, you, you convert well. And the third thing is, I think at that time, we kicked the ass of our marketing agency. Um, marketing agency are very useful, but can debate it. At the end of the day, you always need to be on their back to ensure that they're allowing, uh, putting enough resource on your account. So, started working pretty well. We even doubled the monthly sales between October 2011 on December 2011. And we doubled again between December and January. So we did four times in three months and everybody was very happy until everything broke suddenly. January, uh, all the delivery companies were getting too much volume through their business. The one we were using, few customers were telling us that it was average, especially for big items. We're, well, like it's okay, we had one, two, three issues, but when you have three issues multiplied by four times every month, on, on days, start screwing up on losing your product becomes a problem. If you add to that that you have too much sales and too much queries from customers by email, you can't even answer everything straight away. We had been procrastinating regarding putting a phone number on the website because we didn't really know how to deal with it and it was supposed to go live in February, but that was too late. It's always a bit too late. The worst thing is we were putting everything we thought was necessary or more than necessary in customer service. That was the terrible thing is the team we were celebrating was customer service. We, we thought we were ahead of the game and we were actually a bit late. Um, and everything exploded. Uh, the blog that when we launched said we were an amazing company was writing that we were a crap company. Um, we made a few mistakes in how we were dealing with customer complaints and when things go wrong, they always go wrong together. So we spent five months rebuilding things. We stopped spending so much, much more in marketing, still growing. We didn't do that. We were growing, but less fast. 
as we were in a rush, um, I hired two guys to help my operation manager in the UK. Had one guy do logistics on another lady doing customer service and they had like 15 years of experience. They seemed amazing on their CV. We saw them twice both and, and, and we had amazing reviews from, uh, from their past employers on um, reviews on the paper and we screwed up on the two recruitments. Um, never believe what a uh, recruitment company is sending you as a written, uh, how do you call that, recommendation. Yeah, I, I never do that. Oh, we screwed up on that and it took six months to rebuild things. Um, it went so wrong at some point with the delivery company before we managed to extract most of our business from them that everything that was going through their hub in May, the London hub, so 50% of the business was getting lost. But lost like, not, last, not lost like there is no tracking, lost like it never hap- goes to the customer because it doesn't even go through their system. Do you know how that worked? But I got, got to a point where you had, we, I had actually to call... You have to think a bit out of the box, but it's a bit desperate. And I was like, shit, how do we do that? We're going to actually, uh, Addison Lee had a service where you can actually send us, you can send a big thing to somewhere else. And I called Addison Lee and said, if I actually bring big trucks of items to central London, or my customer service is calling customers to book appointments, can you come with like, can we have a deal on all your vans are coming to that point and you are actually delivering sofas to the places? And they obviously said no. So it took us a bit of time to, 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 to make things uh, right. But um, after a while, it was working pretty good. So did you find like, a good like, deliver, like, delivery company in the end? Or did you uh, we, change altogether? Or what no, we found, a, we found a good, very small company yeah, okay. to only do London because London was the worst part. They were pretty small. They were having a good service. Um, they were willing to, to, to service for not too expensive. The issue we have in our business is when you're selling a sofa for 500 pounds instead of 1,000, customers already don't want to pay 100 pounds for delivery for a 1,000 pound sofa, but they really don't want to pay 100 pound delivery. And that's the cost of a delivery most of the time for a 500 pound sofa. So when expensive companies can factor it in the product price, for us it's a job in price in 20%. So you can't be working with the very wide glove companies. We had to find a very good quality small company. It took time on to work with them in improving their service on the, on the, on the geography they could work on. Yeah. And so you, you spoke about how uh, you had a lot of problems at some point with your customers, like uh, with your customer service and that blog who said you were great, at some point said that you were a shitty company because you had all those problems. How do you deal with uh, a sudden drop in reputation when you're a brand, like, and when your brand is actually important for your business and your sales? Uh, the thing is, I don't, I, don't, I don't know, I'm not sure I ever know whether it was a huge big deal or, or, or a deal still. I think you make it a huge deal. It, it could have been a very huge deal. The first thing we did is we, drafted an answer on the blog saying that we screwed up and we grew too fast, which was true. Yeah. We grew too fast. We were trying to, um, uh, to fulfill customer needs and be ahead of the game and actually we, we failed. We were late on a few things and the service is improving and we're doing our best to service it. The second thing we did was, um, luckily we, it was, we had raised quite a bit of cash. Uh, we, we raised 2.5 million on the paper at the very beginning, which at the time was quite rare. We had to raise a lot of money because we're, we do a lot of different businesses. We have design, supply, quality, retail, uh, customer service, on tech. But we were spending the marketing quite, uh, we were quite, uh, how do you say, stingy 
um, we didn't like to spend the money. So we could still kind of throw money on the problem when an issue was appearing. So if you had a delivery issue at that time, we were refunding delivery. So that's the first thing. So you, you refund the customers, you deal with the customers who actually want the delivery for free on the item too. And by the way, they're going to they're gonna call uh, everybody on, on kill you. Um, but that, that's still an issue because I had a customer once on her product was late by two weeks. It was actually the second batch of product. I was in the airport going to China. So I took the call and she was on the phone for an hour telling me how bad we were. And I was like, the most I can do, I remember at the time was like, we're going to refund the delivery. I can cancel the order. I'm gonna giving. I'm gonna give you. I think at that time we gave a 50 percent voucher. Free so but on, Yeah, and she could no, on, for next purchase. And she was yelling at me, and she could still cancel. And on, on, on that's that's hard stuff to deal with because there is nothing much you can do. On at some point you're just like I need to, but you can't. <laughs> you can't. So you just take the hit. Um, and I have no solution for that. Did you miss your flight? No, I, no, I didn't miss my flight. Uh, it started in the taxi actually, and. <laughs> So the second thing you do is we, you throw some other kind of money on, on, on the fire, which is you, we recruited more customer service agents. So you deal with issues with volume first. So you try to deal with the fire and then at the same time or later, depending on how brand, much brand new resource you have left, or usually entrepreneurs don't have any because uh, you are, have to deal with the day-to-day -day all the time. That's the, always the issue. At the same time, you try to solve the problem in the long term. And an example of not having enough time to do that was recruiting two wrong people to deal with the issue. Um, but we, we just had to do it. Yeah, yeah and, but, but rec recruitment is key then in this case because as you're saying, your, your brain space gets smaller and smaller yeah. as you have more shit to deal with. So you need people to like kind of help you deal with all that. So, so I think the three key things were, I mean, recruitment yeah. was key. Anticipation is key. And seriously, we thought we were anticipating a lot, but thinking again, the debate on having a phone number on the website or not, we had it since day one, and that was almost after two years. So we could have done it, but at the time we had no issue dealing with emails. Emails were answered within two hours. Mid-February, they took three days to answer an email. So if you're emailing me telling me the customer, uh, the delivery is not here, should I stay at home? Well, I'm answering you in three days. That just doesn't work, but the phone number would have helped. On the third thing was, uh, what did I say? Oh, the third thing is listen to your customers. Um, the issue on the delivery company on how you, we could have tweaked a bit the business or solved some stuff was raised by customers yeah. a few times. Not like two million times, but a few times. Um, and it's actually the, the, the biggest advice I can give now in, in any part of the business to avoid issues, to grow, to change, to develop new services. The people who know what you should do you should stop trying to reinvent the wheel and think you know everything. And by the way, your customers don't, don't know they want that, but they want that. Most of what they want is in what they ask you. And you can actually trigger that. What we did since day one, I think, or two months into the business, is we sent emails to the customer to ask for feedback. Um, it has a lot of good uh, things in it. The first thing is... If your customer is happy, you get happy feedback. It's really good for the team. And actually, you can, if you use it well, you can publish it. Secondly, if your customer is unhappy, you have two positive points. The first thing is that they complain to you rather than complaining to Facebook. And 
please, when you have a negative comment on Facebook, forget answering it and then erasing it after two days because we did it once and that's terrible. And the third thing is they give you insight on how to improve. And that's really super valuable. Yeah. My, my next question is going to be more about working with China. So I don't know if anyone here uh, is working on a hardware company or maybe just like a manufacturing company. And so how, how do you build networks in China? So I believe maybe your co-founder had, had contacts there, so how, or maybe not, but how, how, do you, how do you do this? It seems very daunting so we, we to a lot no, of companies. But yeah, we, have, we, we had a few contacts. Ning had worked in the industry before, okay. and I had worked in the industry before. Not, I think we reused maybe two of the factories we had worked with in the past, so n not much more. Um, the thing which is a bit, which I still don't understand, is there is no way of knowing which fact, who, are, who are all the factories doing what in which country. I mean, a lot of people know Alibaba now, this huge group in China, and they started as being an, an uh, uh, how do you say, um, an annuaire. Um, um, phone book. Yeah, great. Phone, Thank you. Huh? Yeah, a yellow page for like uh, factories in China where they were uh, factories were displaying what they were uh, selling, what price, when you could contact them. Well, first of all, um, I think using it was pretty crappy, and there is nothing like that in, in Europe. On, or we source 50% in Europe, roughly, and 50% in Asia. So there is no magic way of knowing which factory you want to deal with. I mean, you had a bit of like online uh, research. You had a, you have a bit of like going to fairs. The best was to use the contacts of the people you work with. I mean, if you have somebody in your team who work, has worked with factories, they know factories which are reliable and they have been working with. It's half a problem of being working, working with a reliable factory and half a problem of working with the right factory for your size because the factory might be very reliable but too big for you or too small for you. The, the first trip I did, and I was even before quitting my first... I had quit my job, but I was before joining the team here in January 2010, in, in December 2009, I went to China for two weeks. And we looked for factories, and then I went to the UK, and we found a, a UK um, sofa supplier. And you just try and find them. The biggest mistake to make is to place an order to a factory in a trade fair. Not because they are bad factories, but because you don't know whether they're a good factory. Um, the other mistake that a lot of people do is they try to go for the cheapest one. Um, that, that looks good. But uh, the right thing to do is to try and find a factory that works with other UK brands, in our case, because you need UK regulations, we need the UK fire retardant treatment, you need UK plugs, they need the CE stuff. They're going to tell you they do it. They can do it if they don't do it, sometimes. Uh, most of the time they won't. They are, they are still very professional, but sometimes they're going to tell you they're going to try. But you need to work with somebody who works with... We needed to work with factories that needed work, were working with big brands. That was the best way of doing it. Some of them we couldn't afford at the very beginning. Too expensive, but it was not really a problem of price. It was a problem of volume. We had no volume. We were going to factories selling them our business plan, kind of. On telling them that it was not a problem, that other brands were going to buy... IKEA would buy like 100 containers at a time from them. What we would do would be to buy, place orders every two weeks and they would have a container every two weeks rather than 100 containers at a time and they could plan their uh, manufacturing capacity this way. And we were going to ramp up very well and we had a, a company we knew that was doing the same thing. So you don't, never lie, always take inspiration from stories that exist and, uh, and on, 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 on show them that you have, you have a good future. But uh, I mean, if you talk about China, I mean, 
the only difference between China and Europe, I would say, I mean, there are a few. Um, the first thing is, you can get the same quality in China that you get in the UK. By the way, the first quality issues we had were with your UK factory. Okay. It was not specially due to the factory. Most of the time, it's also due to the spec you give them. In this case, it was packaging. Uh, Chinese factory, if you pay the right price for the product, you're going to get a good quality. You might have a bit more of follow-up to do. Another issue is you have to buy bigger quantities because you have to ship them by containers. You can ship them by few pieces, but it's going to be much more expensive. Transport is going to be more costly and it's going to break in transit. Um, and, it, and it takes time to come. So on average, it's going to be slightly cheaper, 30, uh, 20 to 30% for the same product, even with the currency effect, which is also a risk. But it's going to take time when you have to be, buy bigger volumes. It's also takes times to find the factory on assess it on, 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 on the culture difference in difference on the language barrier makes it more complicated to deal with them. Yeah, how, how did you deal with this? Do you have a translator when you go and actually yeah Yeah so the team the in China they, they're all technical about the product, they know how to source, uh, but a big part of their job not part of their job, but a big part of the added value they have, not that's on you, you shouldn't take it the wrong way, but it's uh, the language thing. They speak Chinese. Plus, they are good in their job. Plus, they, they, they know how to deal with the business. And they, are, they are super skilled. But if you put a very skilled person who doesn't speak Chinese, it doesn't work. So now we had translators who were not only translators. And they were on the same time zone also. If we were working with China from here, you have three hours a day to deal with them. Or, or you have to wake up at five. On, on you, if you build your company and you wake up at five, You might be lucky on, on be good at five. I'm really shit at 5 a.m. Uh, but yeah, you, you can't do it too long. Okay. So um, now my question is going to be about the future. So you have a company which is called Amazon, which is kind of eating away a lot of market share in any sector of e-commerce. Uh, so how do you, as Mate.com or any any e-commerce business, do you deal with that, with that huge risk that Amazon may actually move into your specific segment? It's a very good question, not only for us, but for the all, the whole, all the companies working uh, online specifically, uh, especially. Even though, I mean, we're not only an online company anymore. Amazon is not only an online company anymore. I think the main thing that helps us on the, the key thing when you, when you try to sell online is to have a brand. If we were selling Nikes or uh, Converse, or if I was Zappos, Zappos, yeah, no, Amazon there. If we were selling items that anybody could sell, I don't know how we can compete against Amazon. They have the volume, they have the branding, they're gonna kill you on the prices. So the, on even, even if you forget Amazon, if you try to retail items that other people can retail, the issue on the internet, is that everybody's going to compare the prices, so you're going to enter a price war. And the problem here is, and that's an issue we have with e-commerce on, 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 um, on all those companies willing to spend that much cash in, in growing super fast on all the cash on the market. You have so many people who think, first, that selling online should be cheaper than offline, which is wrong because uh, marketing is very expensive, who are willing to spend a lot of money to grow to 100 million sales in like three years, while... Honestly, that should take 20 years, and that's not a problem. On so many companies that are going to do that, even though they're going to go bust, that you're going to have to decrease your price, and you're going to go bust too. It's a bit dramatic, but uh, I wouldn't do pure retail online because these guys are extremely good, or you do it a different way, which I don't know. Um, so we have a brand. 
So all products are unique to us. So you can find products which are similar somewhere else. The value added we have in, in the way we design them, on build them, on supply them makes that we, it, the cost for us is cheaper than a lot of other people. And we can work on smaller margins. So those two things make it slightly easier on, to compete with Amazon. I don't, I don't think they're in the same, we are or they're in the same game. It's the yeah. different targets. Okay, got it. Okay, so positioning is different and you have a brand. We're a brand. On, yeah. The brand is, it's in two things, in the fact that we have our own products. Yeah. You can't find them on Amazon. And the second thing is, we are not only a retailer, we're a designer and manufacturer, so we integrate everything. Yeah. The day Amazon decides to, or somebody else, decides to start acquiring factories, uh, hiring designers, on building a supply chain, on building a brand on the high end, because in people's mind, they are still, it's not low end, they, are, they, are, they have they're a volume business on the price business. Yeah, we're gonna be in trouble, but uh, I think we have a bit of room to grow. Okay, cool. Uh, it will be my last question, and then I will open questions to, to the audience. Um, what about you? So you, you don't work for Made.com anymore, I believe. So what's your, what are your next plans? What, what are you doing now? Uh, so what's, what's your, what do you have in mind for you? Well, that's a, it's a good question. Uh, so we were lucky enough to have made a very good call in the last three, four years. Is we started hiring a very good management team. We have an MD, the CEO now, who had been with us for like four years. On the team, is doing an amazing job. So I'm going to talk about myself. I had the luxury um, that doesn't happen very often, I think, to be able to step out of the day-to-day -day job. I'm still a shareholder of the company and to do something else. It takes a bit of time to do that, even though, uh, even though it's exciting because I can do something very different on possibly that has nothing to do with e-commerce or furniture. Um, it's exciting and that's something I, want, I wanted to do. At the same time, it takes, it takes a bit of time of, to cut the link. Actually, the link is not cut at all. I'm in the office every like week. Um, on what's next, I've been traveling for, shit, it's been nine months now. I, I came back from Iran which was the last country a month ago. So I'm looking into new projects, um, which could be mainly, I'm looking at different industry would be, uh, I would, I love the education industry and I, I think we could do a lot of good stuff in education and it's not been disrupted too much yet because there, there doesn't seem to be enough money to be made so not enough people are going for it. Um, I'm looking into sports and I'm looking into uh, med tech, but, I can bet you at the end of the day I might do something very different. So Amazon, so we thought about it. Um, let's say we thought about it in the UK first and then we thought about it in like launching new countries. If you launch a new country, you have two issues. The first one is your brand. Selling on Amazon could be seen as diminishing your brand in some ways or, or, or then being a bit stuck with Amazon driving most of your sales. But we still thought about it in countries like Germany, where Amazon is really big on a lot of retailers, even more than in the UK, are selling through there. Uh, I think we wouldn't have made that call anyway, just because we wanted to be the, the one point of contact for everything. Um, second issue, actually, there are three, are complexity of integrating the systems. Um, due to the fact that we, everything we sell is not sold with like a fixed lead time, the lead time we promise you on the product page is always the right one, but that, that time is gonna, is gonna uh, change depending on the inventory available in the next batch coming or in the warehouse. So if I have, let's say if I have a lamp 
the lamps you're willing to buy in the warehouse and then only one and then two coming available in the next batch and then maybe five. You're going to see on my product page on May that I have one available, but if it's being bought by somebody right now on the same time and they selected it and they put it in, in, in your basket, the next person visiting the page is going to see next batch two weeks lead time. Integrating those information on, on inventory between your inventory on Amazon inventory or between your inventory on your stores seem to, I mean, is quite complicated. It's never real time. So that's one of the issues. Integration is one of the issues. On the last one is margin. We looked into it, but with margins we have, on the margin Amazon is asking for to, to do their delivery on inventory or only to take the, to do the sale, we couldn't do it. You have a few companies with kind of exactly the same model, uh, operating it a bit slightly differently, but they have, their market is a bit more niche or s smaller in terms of volume. We've always looked at the competition as, I mean, we've always looked for competition at uh, all the traditional retailers. We've People who hate us, because I, I, I can't say where we have gone for their business because then they sue us for that, uh, would have been Habitat, would have been John Lewis, um, some customers who would have been buying or, as, let's say this way, we are selling items to people who were buying from this kind of person because we think, I'm not saying, we're proposing nicer items as a, at a better value. You could have people who would love to buy at Conrad or Hills, but don't have the money to do that. And we're making this quality available for cheaper. But you also have people who uh, were buying from IKEA because they didn't have the money to buy something uh, more expensive. And we're making that more expensive items at roughly the same price. So it's kind of creating, we, we, we went right where you shouldn't go. We went for the middle market. It's not the middle market. It should never be in the middle, but we, I think we recreated it. We made uh, uh, middle quality items affordable and higher quality uh, at the middle price. I, I'm not sure it m makes sense, but uh, on the, the other thing is the market was so huge. I mean, the market in the UK, when, when we launched, you had the biggest brand at launch huh, was turning over, I had 4% market share only. And I'm talking of IKEA or Argos or people like, now they are bigger, but it was an extremely fragmented market. So if you're dealing with like a market of four people, you really have to position yourself and to compete against these guys in a market like that. You really need to think about your value added and you improve it. Okay, you look at competition, but looking at your customer and your business, you can already improve quite a lot. You have a lot of different numbers when you, uh, when you look at how big the furniture industry is in the UK, on, uh, if you, d depending on what you include in it. Oh, uh, flooring, blah, 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 blah. If you say it's 100 million, on, if you read, we might have made last year 100 million. Uh, if it's, say it's, 100, uh, it's 10 billion, we might have made 100 million, that's uh, 1%. When we started, I can't remember the percentage, but a huge percentage of the market was made by very small companies. And that's, that is very much the case in the UK. Then we launched in France, in Germany, in Switzerland. If you look at Switzerland, I, I don't remember very well, but we looked at it and it was like the top three players were doing 50% uh, and the top uh, eight were doing 80%. It's not, not the same numbers, but something like that. And that's much more scary. Um, we have different ways of looking at it. Either you're much better than these guys and that's not scary. Either it's very scary because you have to, it's, it's, it's not fragmented enough to, to get in very easily. So we raised money since day one. We had, a, so we, we had a board at that time of seven people, including uh, three of our main investors. The run was with three, three, three investors at the very beginning. And they raised the question of going to the UN since, I think, the first board. It's been coming uh, every two, three boards now, 
uh, a bit less. Um, and then in the US, you also had like huge business model that were working very well, like Fab.com or One Kings Lane on very different model, Flash Shell, which I don't think works well for a non-branded industry. And we didn't go for a few reasons. Um, and we then chose to do go to France. First of all, we have we thought, and I think we were right in thinking we had a very complex business. And by the way, we, it was taking us time to master it and to do it well, well in the UK. So we, we do the job of a design company, an e-commerce company, a supply chain company, and a furniture company. And we, we have to master all those things. While a lot of people just launch a retail business or just a brand and they don't deal with retailing, that was quite hard to master. And then when we thought we were ready to launch in another country, actually we always thought we were not ready and at some point we forced ourselves to say, okay, yes, we're going to go. We chose France because we were three uh, French funders. It's two hours by Eurostar. It's the same time zone. And it's much easier to manage stuff. I mean, we went there. It's easier to find a delivery company, to find a, to find a, a warehouse and all this kind of stuff. The US will always be in our mind. We might go, um, but for the moment, we decided to go first to France. Then we launched in Netherlands because we wanted to launch in Germany, but we were scared of Germany. Everybody is scared of Germany. Uh, marketing is too expensive. Competition is too high. You don't speak German. They don't like French or English. Uh, and you had big rocket internet companies there. So we went to Switzerland a bit because of that, procrastinating on, 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 on learning. We knew the French market. We didn't know the... German market, so we went to a market we didn't know, which was Netherlands. It was closer to France on items in mainland Europe or dispatched from, from France. Two warehouses, one in the UK, one in France. So it's, it's cheaper in terms of transit. And it's a smaller market, which we thought was easier to uh, crack because less big guys are going there less soon. Uh, so we went to Netherlands, then we went to Germany. And the good news it was, was that it was actually much, it's not easy, much less scary than we thought. We also thought in the, that in the German market, the return rate, the big scary thing with the German market is if people return their items like 1% of the time in, in the UK, it's going to be 3% in Germany. So in retail, in, in fashion, if it's 10%, then it's 30% there. It's actually not that big for us, or not bigger than the UK. So the website was in Magento, it's still in Magento. Um, then after three, four months, we decided that we couldn't uh, keep... Uh, Imagine war, supply chains on containers, on dispatches, on orders, on Excel, because my MacBook was crashing in every Eurostar trip. And I'm not kidding. It was crashing five times. I had like an Excel spreadsheet with, it's going to be dispatched, I'm going to allocate those products. And I was sending, we're still telling our warehouse exactly what to dispatch on what day. Now it's automated and it's much better done. But then we, we realized that uh, if the MacBook was crashing uh, too much, uh, there was no database anymore. And we built uh, an ERP system based on um, an open ERP. It was called Open ERP at the time. It's called Udo, I think, now. And um, hired a, a consulting company to help us build the product. There was no back office or ERP product that we could buy off the shelf that was matching exactly our business because we were pre-selling part of the product, but then some of the items were still arriving in the UK a bit unsold because we were taking a bit of risk in inventory anyway to try and reduce lead time. So some were sold from inventory, some were pre-sold, and we had to find a way to tell our customers who were logging into their account when the item was coming. So we had to build something. A huge part of what, if not almost everything, of what arrives in the UK is sold when it hits the port. Um, we on purpose decide to 
put some items on inventory, or you're going to find it for bestsellers, or uh, chair, or lights, or small items, or decorations. And we can, I think the lead time at the beginning was 14 weeks on, on the promise. And now in the UK, it's on average, right, we might be promising four to five weeks on average, but it goes from two days to like 14 weeks. And uh, we did, on what was delivered when I left in January, that was like three to four weeks average. We have a lot of products delivered like next day or within five days. So uh, the marketplace is a bit like the US market. Uh, we've been th we think about it every year. So every year when we think about the big things next year, <laughs> it's always coming back on the, on the table. One of the reasons why we haven't done it yet is um, because of the brand, we still want to be controlling everything, okay? Um, it's all products, it's all design. It's, I, I think at some point it was because of margin and we thought we wouldn't have good enough margins on marketplace, but I think you can have, we don't have huge margins, so you can have decent margin on a marketplace. We also thought that um, due to the way we were integrated with everything, we're super efficient in terms of value. So if you want to sell a sofa on a marketplace, the value is going to be less good because we have to take our margin. Um, so that, that was one of, one of the things. Uh, I don't remember the other reasons, but we, we were still thinking about it. It might make sense for new products we don't know how to make. Uh, for the moment, we're expanding categories by, uh, how do you say, by doing it ourselves. So we launched a few years ago now a range for kids. We have bed linens. I mean, a textile range. Uh, a year ago, we launched accessories for the kitchen. Now, there are lifestyle products are coming, uh, and they're already on the website. So we do it all ourselves. It takes much more time. I'm not saying a marketplace wouldn't be the right deal. It's a debate. We are still a volume business, so I think small batches. If you go to a factory and you tell them, I'm going to design a new product with you, but I'm, all, I'm only going to buy 10 because it's cool, they are never going to make it. So you could do it with makers, maybe in the UK, local. So we thought about that. I think we had a few ranges like that. Uh, to make it, to make a lot of turnover with that, it's, it's, it's a second kind of operations we have to set up, which we haven't set up yet. And it's less disruptive to expand to new categories or to do new stuff, other stuff, than doing that. But it doesn't mean it wouldn't work. Um, we were lucky to have a good setup. I say lucky because now I've, I've been back to Paris a few times since then. And in Paris, I don't, know, I don't know in London because I've been away for a while. But in Paris, uh, a lot of companies seem to be raising uh, two, three, one, two, three millions on the paper. Uh, usually they have a good team anywhere. They have proven something. At the time, that was quite complicated. And we were lucky, really lucky to be able to do that for a few reasons. So we had a, the, mar the furniture market. Just online was a huge market which hasn't been hadn't been disrupted yet. The furniture market itself is, is, is super huge. So the business model and the business plan we had, for good reasons, was very ambitious. Then what people look for is like security. I mean, they, they, they like your business because they they look at you because you're attractive and they give you money because you're uh, they feel secure. My co-founder Ning had funded a business in France, which we knew on had been working on a few of us together, but he founded it with other people uh, that was doing exactly, at the time, kind of the same thing and was working pretty well at that time. So you had amazing business model, something that was working in the country next to you. The guy who had done it, on Brent Hoberman, who was here putting his, his brand on his... Uh, Gravitas or yeah, reputation. Yeah, reputation into it. And that helped us raise money because you didn't have a lot of projects that were, it's even more true now, but there is, a little, there is a lot of cash in the market, to be fair. Huh? 
there is a lot of cash on the market. The problem when you do seed or when you raise money at series, seed series A, series B is the risk. Uh, being willing to put money in a team you don't know, in a project you don't know whether it's going to be working, it's a huge risk. One of the reasons why you have more, I think, my, my view, you have more money going into it now, and I think there are even possibly too much money, is that people don't manage to make money. Uh, the money you can make elsewhere, um, on the stock market or... Uh, are on bonds on everything, uh, the, the returns are much smaller, so money is, is going to VC a bit more. Um, but it was, it was a story, it was a team, uh, on that, that does help. We, when we raised, we had a website. I, 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 was, I always forget that because we were kind of sure we were going to raise at that time, before launching on hiring people. But we still took the risk of hiring 10 guys, uh, building a website, on going to China and paying for that cost. So we had a product, though, um, even though the discussions were started before. When I say in July 2011, we did three, there was good products, uh, the sales, and on, on we did better marketing. It's really that, plus at the same time, I think it had been a year and a half, we had been growing and people were trusting us a bit more. I think on the, you, you, there was not one single thing. You have to think a bit longer on how did it work. I'll take, the, the, I'll take the, the question a bit of, with a different angle. A lot of people who tried to do the same thing, and that didn't help us raise our second and third round, which we still did, uh, went bust. So you're going to find a lot of French companies, German companies, and a few UK companies who went bust. Not all of them. Um, and everybody was like, guys, they're all going bust. Why the hell are you... How are you different? So we could only guess. Um, some of those companies came to us. So we had their decks, their accounts, their P&L, and everything. So what I could guess from that was that when you were looking at their uh, margin, their margin was much lower than our margin, even though their pricing on their website for equivalent items were higher. Secondly, they were struggling in ROI on marketing conversion. I'd say, I'm not selling it here, but I'd say we were... I simplified saying we were doing what we we're saying in the fact that we were really designing items. We were not just saying it's easy in a factory to take the items that a designer that worked with the factory designed before and you sell it as a designer brand. Uh, we almost did some of that at the beginning. Didn't do. And when we, at the very beginning, we, also, we still had some items that we were finding in the factory and tweaking ourselves, but very quickly you have to design your own stuff and be unique. That's, that's the one way of improving conversion. Otherwise, you fight on price. And I think from experience, as it's very hard to work in factories, not only in China, but in the UK and all that, people always go for the shortcut or the easy win. And we really spent like, I was, I was in China half of the time at that time, uh, still managing the UK operations too. On, on Chloe was, on Ning was, we were just like being into every single detail to, to, to get most of, as much value as we could from the product. Then I think the brand helped. Uh, on that mainly uh, our creative director at the time on, on Ning who was really into it on Chloe too um, I'm less of a brand person and, but they, they, they were like crazy about like single stuff on the website on how we should do things and a lot of people ask us whether why we were not having backgrounds or shooting items in situ in houses because that by the way gives you a better feeling of the product we're like no it's going to be white background white background so I think it created a brand um, it's a bit of everything. And when we made mistakes, we just were pretty quick. I mean, quick enough 
in making, taking turns, making turns. I think so. There is no one thing. So first you, en you enlarge your quantity of categories on the, on the depth of the categories. Uh, that's why we went into small items, accessories, decorations, even though the tickets are less big. Um, secondly, we sold uh, very bad quality items so that they could buy again. I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> secondly, we uh, know it's uh, an obvious mis uh, mistake uh, joke. Secondly, what do you do? You don't, I mean, you can't harass your customer to get them to buy again. What you can do is to get them to recommend you to other customers. People who bought a sofa won't buy another sofa unless they have space for two. And you, you have to assess that, uh, to expect that. Um, so we, 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 we do CRM emailing on, on, on all that kind of stuff. But I'm not sure we were doing it pretty well for a long time. Now we do it much better. Uh, but we send emails quite a, a few times a week, sometimes too often. But we try to target them as, as, as much as we can. Um, but we are actually quite happy with the repeat rate we have in the furniture industry. But a repeat rate in the furniture industry is not like you don't buy five times a year on average. So um, you also have to do one thing, is you have to try and be profitable on yourself from day one. You can't be like, I'm gonna lose money on the, day, on the first purchase on the second because they're gonna buy 20 times. Otherwise, you take too much risks. Uh, Brent Hoberman, but Brent was, uh, as it's amazing to have him on board. He was there making the first phone call. So uh, he got us together. Super well connected. Every time we had a question, an issue, something we had to deal with, uh, somebody we needed, um, you email him, he puts you in contact with somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who can help you on a consulting basis or on, on a full time. And he's extremely creative. And he's got other qualities, but I, I won't go like, too long on that. And the last one was on uh, investors. Um, I don't know whether we were lucky or whether the, most of them are like that. Uh, we, we always have issues, but it never happened that we had like a, a big confrontation. It happened that they were angry, and the only times it happened that they were angry was when, not on purpose, but you forget to tell them in anticipation that you have small issue. Uh, but seriously, the worst thing to do is to hide it, um, but you have so many things happening, that, or, or you forget to see it too. So as long as with your investors you're transparent, and you're anticipating every issue, and you're communicating everything as often as possible, which we're not doing at the beginning, not because we don't want to do it, but because sending an update email every week to an investor takes time, if it's not automated. Or um, at the very beginning, we, we, it, we're always sending the board deck the day before, which is stupid, because by the way, they come, they read it uh, in front of you and they have questions. It's just transparency. So if you're transparent and they know you're working, and you're working because it's your baby and it's your money too. There is no reason why an investor should be yelling at you because the business is not going well. Because by the way, all the decisions you have made on a macro level for the company, you have made them together. As long as you're not doing anything behind their back or uh, being an asshole or, uh, or trying to steal cash, on not hiding anything, there should not be frictions. And I'm pretty sure it happens still, but we've been lucky not to have that. Uh, seriously, communication is very, very key. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to The Wagon Live. Tune in next week for another episode. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to our series by clicking the subscribe button.